Well, good morning. Thank you. Yeah, um, I'm really grateful to be here and this opportunity to share God's word with you. I'm usually uh, attending the 11 o'clock service, and I'm now I'm uh, with the foundry in the afternoon. So 8 o'clock is a little too early for me. Uh, so I'm really grateful to see you all and be welcomed by you. Um, I don't know about you, but when I watch a movie, although I don't really get to watch it that often, I really don't mind hearing about the entire plot of the movie before I watch it, um, especially how it ends. Um, is anyone like that? Okay, at least two people. Okay, that's great. Oh, three people. That's great. <laughs> um, so lately, a friend of mine told me that she really enjoyed watching Martian. So I asked her about that. What is that about? And she told me, uh, oh, I'm not going to give away, okay? So don't worry. Uh, she said, yeah, it's like a castaway, yeah, but it's taking place in Mars. Um, oh, really? Um, and of course, I asked, how does it end? And she was looking at me like, Helen, do you really want to know? Um, yeah, I really do. <laughs> um, well, you know, when I uh, read a novel, um, especially a mystery novel, I'm often tempted to peek at the ending uh, because it gives me a certain sort of perspective and sense of security, especially when the main characters are going through really tough times and uncertain and troubling situations. I know I'm cheating, Right? But I, I feel like uh, some of you might be feeling a sense of superiority to uh, my apparent lack uh, or my apparent inability to appreciate and even enjoy a suspense or thriller or character development or the complex ambiguities and tragedies, tragedies of human drama, drama whatnot. Uh, but I, I give you full permission to do that. Uh, I acknowledge that I'm maybe an oddball here. Um, but my point is that surely, knowing the ending, the future of the story affects my reading in the present. Um, not in a complacent way, but helps me actually pay attention more to the process of the story, how it develops. Pay more focused attention to the characters and how they endures. Knowing what the future holds, or rather who holds the future, will certainly affect the way we live in the present. We humans intrinsically have some picture of the future, and our picture of the future automatically shapes the way we live in the present. We unconsciously live, uh, live out in the present what we think the future holds, even when we are not perhaps so intentional about that. The decisions we make, especially regarding our education, our use of money, time, energy, other resources available to us are determined by our sense of the future. Even those who are in bleak and grim situations of life, like many refugees scattered throughout the world, they are still choosing a prospect 
of a life, new life, however dangerous it might take, in light of their imagined future, over against the prospect of death or sense of non-future. So while we certainly don't have a knowledge or control of our own future or that of others, the quality of the present is shaped by our understanding, expectation, and hope of the future. So in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, as difficult and strange or even scary as it seems to some of us, we get to peek at the ultimate future, the ultimate end of the whole human history through the revelations the Apostle John received from Jesus Christ, the Lord of the new creation. Most likely around the year 96 AD, on the prison island of Patmos, just off the western coast of modern-day Turkey, the very one who holds the future revealed to John what the future he holds for the whole world. Out of the entire book, today's passage in particular opens up the curtain and reveals the final destiny of the entire creation. So what I want to propose now is that we read this passage together out loud. Shall we? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cause from the spring of the water of life. The word of the Lord. Amen. So the biblical vision of the ultimate future is a new heaven and new earth, more precisely, new Jerusalem. The first heaven and the first earth, as we live and know now, is not said to be destroyed like death is in the previous chapter, chapter 20, verse 14. But it's said to pass away. This passage, like the rest of the Revelation, is replete, is filled with the images from the Old Testament prophecies. In the Old Testament, already several centuries before the time of Christ, Isaiah has spoken of the new heaven and new earth. 
So verse uh, chapter 65, verse 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. God brings about the new heaven and the new earth in God's new recreation. The revelation through Isaiah takes us back to Genesis, the beginning. As only God can create, calling the first heaven and first earth into existence, so only God can recreate, calling the first heaven and calling the first world into renewed and restored existence. Therefore, like the Old Testament prophecies, this new heaven and new earth is not purely a spiritual or disembodied existence or space. It's rather a material, physical, this worldly reality with the resurrected bodies and transformed lives. Heaven and earth will be united again. And heaven and earth will be interlocked into a larger reality of the healed, transformed, and redeemed world. The created world. In chapter 20, the new Eden, the garden, is in the new earth. This is the vision of the complete renewal of the old world to its final fulfillment, but not the destruction of the old world. So, in this new order of things, New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God. Once again, the expectations of the New Jerusalem was already very rich in the Old Testament prophecies, like Isaiah, Zechariah, and Ezekiel. So here, verse 18, Be glad and rejoice forever in what, I'm, uh, what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. So back in Revelation, note that this holy city, the verse 2, descends out of heaven to earth. The holy city originates from and by God, not from or by any of the human abilities. So the new order on heaven is defined in terms of the presence of God and the absence of evil. In New Jerusalem, God promises to us that God will dwell with us forever. In verse 3. The promise was also, this promise of God dwelling with God's people was also frequent in Jewish hope of a renewed covenant with God, including the future temple. The word dwelling or dwell, the word skinny, is a translation of a Hebrew word shekinah in Ezekiel 37, 26-27, which was represented by the pillars of cloud and fire at the Exodus and symbolized in both the tabernacle and the temple. So Ezekiel, 
I will make a new covenant, a covenant of peace with them. I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place, Shekinah, will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. This word has a fundamental meaning of pitching a tent, the tent of divine presence as part of God's covenant with Israel. So therefore, God pitched God's tent in the tabernacle, in the temple, and also finally in the human flesh. Therefore, this word, skene, is also the language of incarnation in John 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Jesus, God decisively pitched God's tent to be with God's people. Then God for, will forever tabernacle in New Jerusalem. God will forever dwell in New Jerusalem, in which we, the redeemed, will see God face to face. And God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes, freely give us water of life, and be our Father. And in New Jerusalem, there's also an absence of evil. There is no longer sea, which symbolizes a chaotic force of evil in the biblical imagination. And there is no more death, mourning, crying, or pain, all of which are the built-in afflictions of the present human condition because of the fall. No matter how far we advance technologically, our lives are still touched by tears, death, mourning, crying, and pain. In the old creation, no one escapes them. But in the new creation, no one will experience them. It's too good to be true, isn't it? Yes, indeed. This is not a wish dream, but it will be our reality on that final day because it's God's words, trustworthy and true. This vision for the future is the realization of all the hopes and dreams of God's people throughout the old order. It is the ultimate good news. I want to remind us that John sees and describes this new creation not to satisfy our relentless or restless curiosity about the future. No, he does that to comfort his readers. First, the early Christians in the seven churches, and now, and symbolically, all the Christians throughout all the ages about the eventual change in the nature of this world. This world has been groaning in suffering, decay, and labor pains, as Paul says in Romans 8. Why would John be in exile in the prison island of Patmos to begin with? And what was the situation of the seven churches and the revelations to whom this vision was revealed? The Christians in the seven churches in the revelation were threatened by overt, 
hostility from the others in the Roman society. And they were facing a prospect of either real or perceived persecutions and hostilities in light of particularly the emperor worship. All of the seven churches were subject to social and political forces and cultural currents that threatened to undermine their Christian commitments either blatantly or very subtly. In this prospect of danger and crisis, which has been repeated throughout the many parts of this world, throughout the all history of Christianity, the revelation, especially this vision for the ultimate future, is a call to faithful discipleship in a deepest sense. Now, since we know not only who holds the future, but also what the ultimate future holds, what are the implications of this vision of the future for us in the present? A couple things. First of all, John affirms the created world, and he paints eternal salvation as the redemption of the whole world and of history itself. Salvation, as John sees it, is not rising up from this world to an ethereal, kind of ghostly existence of our spirits or souls. It's not us kind of hovering in the space somewhere out there. It's not individual souls or spirits escaping the earth, right, from the tragedies and sufferings of historical or bodily existence. But it's about the renewal and restoration of this creation. Um, I used to like this song, This World is Not My Home. I'm just passing through. Does it ring a bell? And it ends like angels beckon me in from heaven's open door. Uh, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. I used to sing this song a lot of times, especially when I was feeling um, excruciating physical pains. Um, when, I, when I wanted to just get out of this world and just to escape from my pain, it felt as though it was very comforting then. Um, but I wonder whether this song, or at least my attitude of singing this song then, was true to the biblical message of salvation and new creation. Certainly it is true that this world is not our home. And yet, we're not just passing through this world as though our salvation is an escape, or as though our life here is inconsequential. As one scholar puts it, the ultimate salvation is beyond but not without this world. The early church rejected the heretical notion of the radical spirit matter dualism that says the material physical world is bad and the spiritual world is good. No, the Bible consistently affirms and sees this physical world as the place of God's redeeming activity throughout history and even at the end. We won't go up to heaven over there, but rather what we see is that heaven coming down over here, the earth, 
And it redeems and fulfills every effort in our this worldly lives toward that city, New Jerusalem. A second implication. After all, we are called to the city, New Jerusalem. The city, the realization of the human community in the concrete ways of living out our existence. This new city is where God also acts and dwells with God's people forever. John sees New Jerusalem, the bride, coming down from heaven, now being prepared, beautifully dressed. Prepared by whom? And dressed in what? Well, as we read here, it's coming down from heaven. So as I mentioned, certainly God is the one who who does preparing the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ. However, it seems as though God is not the only one who's doing the preparing, the holy city. Who or what else is also called the bride of church? I'm sorry, well, I kind of gave away. The bride of Christ in the New Testament. <laughs> the church. <laughs> yeah. um, the people of God is also called the bride of Christ. Take a look at um, Revelation 19, 7 through 8, where we hear the shouts for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, our mighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So it's also the church that plays a role in preparing New Jerusalem for her wedding. Yes, indeed. Note the active voice in verse 7. The bride is making herself ready. How? Verse 8. With the righteous acts of saints. Here's the key. The time for dressing ourselves with righteous acts is now. Here is a great paradox. We are saved by God's grace, God's grace alone, and yet our deeds have eternal consequences. All of our individual and collective actions, efforts, and strivings for justice, mercy, and love of God to manifest here on earth and in our cities are for the preparations and adornment of the bride. Every hand extended, every meal shared, every diaper changed, every vote cast, every tear shed for the broken and the marginalized, every word spoken on behalf of the voiceless and powerless, every prayer lifted up for the broken and the marginalized, every prayer lifted up for the hopeless and the helpless, every care and sacrifice shown for the loved ones and the people with many challenges, emotional, spiritual, mental, and physical, every word proclaiming the gospel, every witness to Christ's lordship in the marketplace, every creative act honoring God the creator and contributing to human flourishing and common good. Is all being built into the eternal city, New Jerusalem. Yes, indeed, New Jerusalem is God's unique act 
beyond, even apart from our human ingenuity and scientific advancement and technological development. Yes, indeed, it's the future city of the new creation. And yet, while it originates from God and God alone, it is prepared by God and his people together in the present as the new creation. The new creation has already started with the coming of Jesus Christ as our Emmanuel, God with us. God's end has already arrived, and God's act of new creation has already begun 2,000 years ago. We have been living in the last days ever since. Yet, this new creation will be finally fully realized only at the end. We just don't know whether we are living in the still beginning of the end, or the middle of the end, or the end of the end. But the end of the end, it will be fully realized. So in the meanwhile, in, this, in between the time, what the scholars call the already but not yet reality of this world, we the church, as the new creation, earnestly pray, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And we participate in the coming city, this city of God, even as we eagerly long for its day of final fulfillment and eternal glory. In closing, going back to my initial point that I shared with you, surely knowing the ending, the future of the story, affects my reading in the present if the story's ending really takes hold of me, it orients me toward that ending. And no matter how much I try to resist it, I can't help but reading the story with that end in mind from the pr perspective of that ending. If the vision, this vision of our ultimate future really takes hold of our being, it will orient us toward that future. We'll be so biased or even slanted toward that ending that it will affect and control the way we live in the present, in every way, though not without struggle. In a biblical language, we call that bias, that slant, hope. This hope with the power of the Holy Spirit, gives us every reason not to give up, not to be cynical, not to be indifferent, not to despair in the groanings of the old creation all around us. Do we see, as John saw, the glory of God's presence revealed in the midst of chaos tears? mournings and sufferings and pains of the present world and in our own lives? Do we hear, as John heard, the voice of God that declares God's final victory over all evil? Do we exhibit and reveal the glory of God's presence in the way we live and how we treat each other? The Christian hope rather mobilizes us to see the new heaven and the new earth and to hear God's proclamation of the new creation in the midst of our seas, tears, mournings, cryings, and pains, but not away from them. And this hope is powerful enough to keep us going, 
to renew our hearts and minds and transform our fundamental orientation and action here and now. Brothers and sisters, this is the ultimate good news. Why don't we have, why don't we uh, bow down our heads and some have some moment of reflecting on this hope in Christ? <laughs>